Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In our episode today, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer has been walking us through a series that brings us a biblical focus to family. The series is called Families by the Book. Within this series, we've been taking a look at what real biblical parenting and living looks like in the home. Today's talk is the last in the series and is titled Reigniting the Fire. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. Stick around until the end and find out how you can connect with us here at Unity Baptist Church. Morning. I'd like to just give a brief disclaimer. This is the final me- uh, message we're going to be providing on marriage. But as you can see, we're going to be in the Song of Solomon today. And I just wanted to give a small disclaimer that if we have some young ears who don't typically go to children's church, but you would like them to, uh, you're welcome to meet Miss Amber up front and she will take you down there. The reason being is that it won't primarily be there, but we will touch on some intimate matters within the Song of Solomon. And we won't speak graphically, but we will speak frankly about these issues, and so I'll let you as parents decide whether or not you want your child uh, to be here and part of these, this message and this discussion. So this morning we're talking about reigniting the fire, that there is a, often we talk about the fires of marriage, that there's, a, there's an attraction, there's a, a longing and a desire for one of another that should be there because that's the kind of desire God has for us as a church. Remember that as a church, our relationship to Jesus and the love that he has for us pictures, Ephesians 5, it pictures the relationship of the husband to the wife. And so we're going to look at Song of Solomon chapter 7, if you want to open up there to the middle section of your Bible, to that book that you've likely never read, because you started reading the poetry of it, and you saw him saying that his wife's nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, and you said, this book is beyond me. Let me skip on to Proverbs. I know what to do with those, bo- those words right there. As you're turning to Song of Solomon, uh, just by way of introduction, years ago, I think it was... 1967, Johnny Cash sang a song with Miss June Carter, who who was then June Carter Cash. They sang a song called Jackson. And in that song, you're like, Jackson what? Come to find out it's Jackson, Tennessee, you know, that booming metropolis of romance. And he said, uh, we got married in a fever hotter than a pepper sprout. We've been talking about Jackson when? ever since the fire went out. Y'all know that, don't you? You don't know Romans, but you know Johnny Cash, right? You know, but the, the reason people kind of identified with that is because there's a lot of marriages out there that we get started, and there's most of us, we didn't get married, you know, reluctantly. Ah, oh, gotta marry this woman, all right? Let's get it over with, you know, because I realize this marriage is necessary to start a family, you know? Most of you, we got married because we were in love with one another. We enjoyed each other's company. Our conversations were fresh and exciting and fun, and there was romance, But then somewhere along the way, life happens, health issues happen, kids grow up, life gets difficult, and then the fires of that romance that was there early in your marriage just start to wane over time naturally. And there's a wondering in the the heart of that song, can we ever get it back? And they're dreaming about Jackson, this place they're going to go. And it's actually not, it's not a great song, actually. They're singing about this young couple, the fire went out, and they're dreaming about going to Jackson, and they're threatening each other. We're going to, I'm going to leave you, and I'm going to go find love in the arms of somebody else, I don't know, maybe in Jackson. So this is not a child's lullaby. You don't sing this to your child as they're going to sleep at night. 
And so we turn to Song of Solomon chapter seven here today. And the reason we go here is because the Song of Solomon is God's book on love, sex, and romance. A lot of times in the church we think, oh, well, you know what, God, all we can talk about with these kinds of issues is, you know, God hates it. Well, God doesn't hate it. God doesn't hate it, God created these things. And God says the marriage bed is undefiled. And so God wants us to have an intimacy, not just of a one flesh relationship, but intimate hearts. And this is where it begins. And we're gonna look at Song of Solomon 7. By this time in their journey, we're following this young couple. You have Solomon and his Shulamite bride. We follow them from the time that he noticed her and there was attraction. We followed them through their courtship. If you read through the book, you'll follow them through a time where they get married and you see this marriage processional coming forward to receive her, and then there's the wedding tent, the wedding night, and then you see them in the palace later, you know, and they have their first conflict, uh, which incidentally is over the area of intimacy. You know, he knocks on the door and, you know, she says, ah, you know, I've gotten ready for bed, you know, I'm tired, I've got a headache, and, and it causes a fight. And then later on in the book, where we find ourselves in chapter seven, this is, a, this is a couple that's been married for some time, and now they're working at keeping the fires of marriage alive and what that looks like. And I think there's some things that, just observing this couple, there's things that we can learn from them to keep the relationship alive and vibrant and healthy. Number one, they get away to make time for their relationship. Look at verse 11. The woman is speaking here, and she says, Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom, and there I will give you my love. I want you to see as she's beginning. She addresses him with a term of endearment, doesn't she? She doesn't just say, Yo, Solomon, hey, listen, hey, put your phone down. I'm talking to you. She's speaking softly and gently to him. She says, beloved. And then she invites him away for a weekend getaway. Come away. In other words, let's get away from where we are right now. Where were they right then? Where did Solomon live? He's in in Jerusalem, the capital city, the big city. They're living the big city urban life. And that's not usually a great place for romance. It's a place to get things done and it's busy and it's active. And, And her husband's gotten carried up caught up with the running of the country and there's a lot of stress there and when a man gets stress in his heart and life it's really hard to kind of let down and to be sweet and kind and tender tender and romantic to your wife again and so this is a smart woman what does she tell him come let's go away let's get out of this big city let's let's go to the Sheraton let's go to the Hilton you know let's let's go to Gatlinburg let's go to Sevierville let's get a cabin in the woods you know overlooking a lake with a hot tub and a cold A&W root beer romance okay you know let's get away let's get out into nature and that's kind of what you have to do to clear a person's mind, don't you? Because when you guys want to get away and you want to relax, let's face it, none of you guys are planning to go to Cleveland. Or are you? I don't know. We don't go to the big city. We don't go to Cincinnati unless you just want to catch a show. If you want to relax and really let down and get into one another as a couple, you get into the countryside. And that's where she's taking him. You want to go out into the woods. You want to see nature, smell the fresh air. And that's what this woman is doing. She is taking initiative to make time for one another. And this is where intimate hearts begin. You take time for one another. You schedule time with each other to get away. And so she does that. She takes him away. 
And she tells him, let's go early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, the grape blossoms have opened, the pomegranates are in bloom. She's envisioning that they're gonna get away into the countryside, into the villages, and they're gonna hike. And she's hoping that with, a, with just nature and the scenery being what it is, that you start talking about the things that are happening around you right there in that moment. Live in that moment together. She's not wanting him to talk about all the pressures of the kingdom life. She's not wanting to talk about, oh, by the way, the kids are acting up. She's not wanting to talk about job and business and paying bills. She just wants to talk about them and let's talk about what's happening right around us. Here, smell this flower, honey. You know, here, come over here and just look at this little creature I found on the ground. Oh, there's a deer over there. Let's look at it and just breathe in that fresh air. Let's sit down next to the lake and let's just relax. Let's stay down and let's just, let's just look at the clouds together. She's a smart woman. She knows that she's got to get this man into nature to try to clear his head and clear his mind of all the junk that tends to get caught up in there. And Because men, we get caught up in stress. We get caught up. God made us to be providers. And so we want to take that role seriously and do well to provide for our families. But sometimes we can get so locked in that we can just become functional machines and we're just a locomotive. And we're pulling our family along and providing for them. And we forget all the while that what our family really wants from us is not a better house, it's not a nicer car, and it isn't necessarily an annual Disney vacation. They just want time with you. And for a relationship to reignite the fires, you've got to have scheduled time together. If you don't have that time scheduled, it's really hard to build that relationship to an intimate place. And so she wants to take him away to this, this natural place of beauty. She says, and there I will give you my love. We're going to express love to one another. We're going to enjoy one another in this quiet, serene environment far away from all of our problems. Every couple, every so often, needs to schedule times like this where you just get away. Get out of the city. Get out of the booming metropolis of Ashland, friends, in the hustle and bustle of Ashland life, and get into the villages. Get into small places. Go hiking together, relax together, get a cabin. And then she says in, uh, in chapter four, verse 16, she says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. She's describing their relationship as a garden in that place. And many times throughout their relationship, she sees it as a garden. As a garden is something that needs to be tended. I mean, sure, you could probably get a pack of seeds and just throw it on the ground and pray for the best. Chances are animals are going to eat it or it'll just sit there and bake in the sun. It's not going to do much. What you have to do with a garden is you have to tend it. You have to dig hole, put the seed in, cover it with dirt, water, fertilize, pull the weeds, fence it up from the multitude of deer that we have here in Kentucky, uh, and you've got to protect it. And that's what the relationship is. She sees it as a garden. The love relationship that they have is something that has to be carefully and even daily at times cultivated and protected from all the things that want to destroy your relationship. And so that's what marriage is. They take time to get away. They're intentional about making their relationship healthy. But number two, we're going to see that they are creative. Verse 13, she says, The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh my beloved. Now, we talk about mandrakes you even heard of a mandrake? I mean, do we talk about mandrakes? Mandrakes aren't real big in our culture, but they were back then. A mandrake was sort of a medicinal root, and it was called a mandrake because it was shaped kind of like a scarecrow. It kind of looked like a man, two arms and two legs, and 
And so mandrakes were a medicinal herb kind of a thing where they would use that to heal certain things. And one of the believed properties was that if you had mandrakes, it would enhance one's romantic desires for one another. And so she's offering him, you know, a little sweetened mandrake tea here and saying, here, honey, let's have some mandrakes together. And so that was, she was very clearly intending, I want to experience all of this love relationship with you uh, in this, this, this warm, fun, outdoorsy kind of environment. And then along that same theme, she says, beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh my beloved. So she's talking about giving him old and new fruit. Clearly we're not talking about physical bowls of fruit because there's nothing that says romance, like here, honey, here's some half-decomposed apples. Okay, we, nobody wants to eat old fruit. So what's she talking about here? She just talked about the mandrakes. Okay, so she's talking about new and old fruit. There's old fruit, there's things that were fruitful parts of our relationship, familiar ways that we show and demonstrate love. But then look what she says. She says there's new fruit. There's still creativity going on. They're still trying to think of new ways to, to show and demonstrate love. There's, there's creativity. They're thinking through, how can I demonstrate love to you better? And when we were first married, we were good at doing that. We're just trying different things. We're looking at different things. We're, you know, it's that time when the husbands decide to reach into the wife's purse and pull out the lipstick and we write on the mirror thinking we're real romantic until we learned that lipstick costs $25. And then we decided just to write a regular note to him. But there's creativity. Early on in, your, in our marriage, that's all you have is creativity because you don't know what you're doing. You just got married and you're, you're just kind of feeling your way through what is romance and romantic love? What does the one flesh relationship look like? And you're experimenting, you're trying, you're being creative. This couple is still creative. And I don't just mean in a physical way, I mean in an emotional way. They're trying to find new ways to express and show love. Maybe it's a, a new restaurant. You don't just keep going to Captain D's every Wednesday. You know, you, maybe you go to some new place, maybe a place that has cloth napkins and a waiter, you know, new and creative. And so this woman says, I've got both fruit new and old. In other words, she's not packing that old flannel nightgown with holes that weekend. Fruit new and old. She's trying to show and demonstrate romantic love. Creativity is part of all healthy relationships. Even our love relationship to the Lord, does God want us to continue to be creative with him? He does. Remember, we have these old hymns that we sing, and these are good. These connect us. But the Bible also tells us in Psalms, sing to the Lord a new song. Why would God want a new song? Why do you suppose God cares that we love him in new and creative ways, that we're constantly engineering and creating new ways to show and express worship to him? It's because God doesn't value stagnant relationships where we just come and we just go through the motions of church. Uh, it's time to go to church. It's the right thing to do. I'm gonna sit down. I'm gonna sing my song. I'm gonna give my perfunctory tithe. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna glad hand a couple people and then rush to the restaurant. You think God is pleased with that kind of worship where your thoughts aren't there, your heart's not there, you're a spirit of love, and you don't get creative. You don't think of new ways to do things. You're just like, I'm just gonna get in a rut in an old habit with the Lord. God doesn't want that. Isaiah 1, God says, I'm tired of your new moons and your, your feasts and your Sabbaths. He says, I'm sick of them because it's just, a, it's just a habit of yours, but there's no heart behind it. If God wants creativity in our love relationship with him, how much more does he want us in a marriage relationship to continue to engineer new ways to show and receive love to one another. 
It's supposed to be creative because it pictures our relationship between us and the Lord, Christ, and the church. We're going to see here, too, number three, they remain affectionate. They're married for a while. They've had their problems, but they're still affectionate with one another. Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. Now, when I just read that verse to Gentiles 3,000 years later, we're going, huh? (laughs) What's she talking about here? We need to understand something about their culture. Culturally, husbands and wives never showed public affection. And there's still parts of the Middle East you're going to see that. Husbands and wives don't show affection. It it would be considered scandalous. (gasps) Would you look at that couple? Heath and Amber were holding hands. (gasps) Shameful. You know, and there's just, you would be the talk of the town and people would despise you for showing public affection. I'm not talking about being all over each other, but just even a simple holding of hands or an arm around the shoulder would be the talk of the town. But this lady so longs to have a public and intimate connection to her husband, that public affection, she says, oh, that you were like my brother. She didn't say, oh, that you were my brother. There are some parts of the country you can go that you go there, and you know people may be into that kind of thing, you know, with families. But that's not what she's talking about here. I have to say that because there's actually people who are trying to use this verse to teach that that's what it's talking about. That's not at all what it's talking about. She says, "Oh, that you were like my brother." In other words, when I go out in public, I can hold my brother's hand. I can. My brother can have his arm around me, and we can be close, and I can lean on my brother, but not with my own husband. Our culture forbids it. But look at the longing of her heart. But I wish we could. This is what a healthy couple desires, is that we show public affection to one another. Again, not all over each other, but just a simple holding of hands, an arm around your your wife or your husband, just something that shows this connectivity. It unites a couple together. I mean, even in the animal kingdom, I saw a video this week. I watch animal videos all the time. And there was this zoo that had these two swans, and the girl swan got sick, and they take her away for three full weeks into the, I don't know, swan hospital. And they take care of the swan, and they release her back in, and they decide, we're going to watch a video of this. And these two swans come in, and it was just neat. She made a beeline for her mate. And as soon as she got there, their heads do that kind of heart thing. Have you seen that? They actually do that in nature. Their heads immediately touched and made that little heart. And then they started doing some like crazy choreography, you know. Their necks started bouncing around together like this. They're just, they're just showing affection and love because that's what we do when we have strong feelings of being connected to someone as a mate. We were usually pretty good at doing that when we were dating, right? I mean, is there any couple that dated that didn't hold hands at one point in time? You know, one dating couple or engaged couple where you didn't, uh, you know, put your arm around her at some point in time. There, that physical affection, you know, and we don't want to carry that too far, but there's some degree of, of public connectedness. It shows there's an exclusivity of this relationship. And I, there's a healthiness to this relationship. This couple who's been married for a while now, they're still desiring public affection with each other. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's... It's fine for you, that's not my marriage. But you know, that's something we could work toward, isn't it? You know, where do we start? You know, where did you start when you were dating? You probably held hands. Try doing that. You know, husbands, surprise your wives. If you're not a publicly affectionate guy, by the way, you say, well, that's just not my personality. I'm not that kind of guy. It's gonna mean a lot more coming from you then than any other guy who's normally an affectionate fellow. 
but just reach over and take her by the hand. Put your arm around her and see if that doesn't communicate a connectedness and an intimacy of heart and relationship. So this public, they, this, she desires this kind of affection. Number four, she seeks counsel from her elders. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother. Hmm. Nothing like a trip to the mother-in-law's house for a romantic weekend, amen? But that's what she desires. I want to bring you to my mother's house. She says, she who used to teach me. And I would give you spiced wine to drink and the juice of my pomegranate. And so there's hospitality taking place. She desires that she takes this man and introduces him into all aspects of her life. She wants there to be an, a closeness of relationship that you love the people that I love. Which is why it's always a bit of a warning signal, folks. If you're dating somebody and they're trying to pull you away from your parents, you know, red flags, whistles, red lights, you know, why are they trying to separate you from your family? Usually the healthy aspect is I want you to know my family and I want, and I want to know your family. We want there to be an intimacy and a closeness there. Now she wants to bring him in to this mother's house because this woman has taught her. She's taught her about life. She's taught her about love and her relationships and family. And she wants to bring her husband in on that to get to talk to this woman who taught her. That even though they're married, she does not... She does not see herself as omniscient, that just because you put a ring on, now we know everything there is about marriage. This is a woman who's, who still wants to s submit herself, if you will, to the wise counsel of her mother. And she wants her husband to be on the receiving end of that, that they are learning under her and they're enjoying time with those who are older and been married a while and who could continue to instruct and teach them. And by the way, there's no couple who graduates out of that. There's no couple who is flawless. Therefore, there's no couple who isn't needing to continually work on their marriage. And one thing I would encourage you is, don't wait. Don't wait until you're ready for a divorce before you finally seek marriage counseling. Don't wait until things are a disaster before as a sort of a Hail Mary pass into the end zone, you decide, well, let's, I heard about this marriage conference in Cincinnati. What do you think we go down there? And I don't know, maybe that'll fix us. This is the kind of thing that you do as an ongoing way of, of improving your relationship continually with one another. You don't wait until it's bad and then finally seek help. If we, if we, you know, there's a lot of times we just wanna be seen as always having it all together, but friends, that's pride. Don't let your pride hinder the health of your relationship together. Seek help before things get really bad. You know, the couples that tend to go to counseling, that tend to go to marriage conferences and things, those, those families tend to be healthy for a reason. You remember back in the uh, 1980s, there was an ad campaign, Head and Shoulders. I think they still sell the shampoo. I don't know. Head and Shoulders, is it still out there? It's a shampoo for dandruff, so you're not scratching and, you know, having, uh, you know, snow-capped mountains on your shoulders during the day. Well, there was evidently in the 80s, everybody was humiliated about dandruff. That was the thing you didn't want to have because you're going to get fired if you have dandruff. So Head and Shoulders had this ad campaign. And in that, you know, there's a couple dudes in the locker room. One guy's about to take a shower. And he's like, hey, I forgot my shampoo. Can I borrow yours? And the guy throws him this bottle, you know, and he catches it. Oh, Head and Shoulders. But you don't have dandruff. And then right in the middle of that commercial, the guy kind of catches himself. 
Oh, <laughs> I see where you're going with this. You don't have dandruff because you use head and shoulders. And so I think the same thing is true in marriage. Some people might be surprised at some of us who go to marriage conferences and go to seek marriage counseling. What? You go to marriage counseling, but you have a healthy marriage? Oh, you have a healthy marriage because you're working at it. You have a healthy marriage because you're going to conferences, because you're studying and reading books on marriage and parenting together, because you're seeking counseling. Remember, all counseling is, it's not an admission of failure. Marriage counseling is an admission that this is important to you. Marriage counseling, all it is, is individual focused discipleship on the area of marriage. There's nobody who wouldn't benefit from that. I just encourage people to seek that out. Now for this woman, her counselor throughout her whole life has been her mother, and obviously continues to be so because she wants to bring her husband into that and to enjoy that relationship with her. Number five, we see that this couple still make time for intimacy, for a one flesh relationship. By this time, she's gotten them away from the pressures of life. They've been hiking out in the fields. They're smelling the grape blossoms, whatever that smells like. You know, she's, they've had some just intimate, romantic times. They're, they're going out, she, having some you know, spiced wine or whatever and some kind of mandrake tea or whatever. They're getting out, they're having a good time and all of this has built up to a place where now that they've had this close communion, this close fellowship, this woman desires her husband in a one flesh relationship. In verse three, she says, his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. That's just a, that's just a depiction of in her heart, this is what she now desires from him. And she's communicating these desires to him at this point. Now, what, lead, what led up to this? You can't just jump to that. You can't just jump to that and hope that that's gonna be a healthy place in your marriage. What, what built up to this? First of all, even before the wife did all her work to plan this whole weekend getaway, I want you to look back a chapter, beginning of chapter seven, look at how this man was talking to her before she invited him for a weekend away. Look how he talked to her. Chapter seven, verse one, he says, how beautiful are your feet in sandals, O, noble's daughter, o noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is like a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a, what does that say? Heap of wheat. Man, you gotta be careful with some of this. <laughs> I'm telling you right now, you tell your wife that her belly reminds you of this big old pile of hay you saw in the field the other day, you're gonna get kicked smooth out of the bedroom just that fast. So you gotta be careful how you apply the Song of Solomon, mind you. What I want you to see is a few things from this. This man is speaking gently and kindly to his wife. First of all, notice what he calls her. What, what, how does he address her? How beautiful are your feet, what? Noble daughter. Now was this woman truly from noble birth? You ever read Song of Solomon? In the beginning of the book, she is not from nobility, she's a peasant. She's working out in the vineyards. In fact, when he first takes notice of her and starts talking to her, hey girl, you know, you live around here? You know, he's, he's just striking up a conversation. She actually tells him, do not look upon me for I am swarthy. We don't use that word very often. It just means she's baked, she's sunburnt. She's embarrassed about the condition of her skin because in that culture, whiter the skin, the prettier the girl, the darker the skin, you know, the more repulsive her appearance. The opposite is true here in America, I guess. You don't want to tan, but 
That's what the culture was. And so she felt very embarrassed because she was a worker of the vineyard. She, was, she says, I've been caring for my father's vineyard, but my vineyard, my body, I've not taken care of. She was embarrassed about how she looked in her appearance, that she was from humble means, and here is the king. But what does he call her into, into this marriage? What does he call her? He calls her a noble daughter. What he's letting her know is that he sees her as an equal. This isn't a top-down relationship. Yes, the husband is the head of the home, but he's communicating a mutual respect and love for one another. He doesn't talk down to his wife. He doesn't treat her like a lesser being. He values her heart. He values her opinion. He values her relationship. And he's telling her, you may have been a worker of the fields, but I see you as a peer, as an equal to me. And so there was a mutual respect between them. And then look at the things that he is complimenting her on. Now on it, let me, before I get here, if you ever read through their honeymoon, you wanna read through chapters three and four, you wanna read about that, he comments on the things that men would normally comment, you know, her hair and her eyes and her teeth and her mouth and, and all the rest of things. Normal things that you might compliment a woman on, but what does he compliment later in their marriage, let's say a, a kid later or something, what is he complimenting her on? Feet? Feet, thighs, navel, and belly. What, what do these components usually have in common? They're areas of typically a woman's insecurity. So what is this man doing? He's complimenting her, he's letting her know, I'm not just impressed with all these things that impressed me on the honeymoon. I want you to know that in this depth of relationship that we have now, I find you altogether attractive. There's nothing about you I don't like. Even in the areas you don't like, oh, but my feet have swollen up, I've had three kids, my feet are like three times two size, I had to throw away 36 pairs of shoes, my feet are awful, don't look at my shoes. But what does he say? How beautiful are your feet in sandals? Everybody gets to see your feet and I don't care, I think they're beautiful. This is something men need to understand though, is he, he is intentionally as a romantic man giving her security in areas where she would typically be insecure. If you have an unscrupulous man, he's going to take advantage of these insecurities and he's going to poke at her and he will say negative things about the body of his wife. Hey, honey, you know, I got you, <clears throat> got your membership out to Planet Fitness, you know, and uh, I don't know, I thought maybe someday you want to maybe try to fit into the same clothes you wore on our honeymoon someday, maybe, you know. You know I, by the way, and he just has tips and advice for how she can improve her body or worse yet, maybe compare her to someone else. Guys, if you've done that, you need to go home and I'm just telling you, repent to her. Trust me, that hurt her feelings more than you could possibly know. And you need to be more like Solomon here and in the areas where she feels insecure, you need to let her know that you're pleased. That's what this guy's doing. In these areas where she's insecure about herself, he's actually telling her, I'm happy with you, baby. I am pleased. Now, ladies, pleased doesn't mean perfect. Pleased means pleased. It means this man is happy and content with what God gave him. And so if the man says he's happy with you, you need to just take that and move on. This guy is happy with you just as you are. And so men, we need to communicate that kind of thing with her to give her this sense of security. Because if a woman feels insecure about how she appears to you, trust me, that's going to have a strong negative effect on the health of your one flesh relationship. And so this man is very kind to her and he's speaking to her in this way. And then right after that, we read, come away with me. Let's go, to, let's go out to the villages. Let's get away from the big city. Okay, it inspires romantic thoughts, feelings, and a desire to spend time with one another because this woman feels secure with you. Secure to the point where eventually she's communicating her expectations of the weekend. 
Okay, his left hand is under my head and you know, his right hand embraces me. She is communicating very clearly what she is hoping for in a one flesh relationship with this man. And we're not gonna go into detail here. But what I will say about this is this. A healthy one flesh relationship isn't about learning the physicality of things. It's not about reading books and trying crazy stuff. A healthy, intimate, one flesh relationship with somebody is all in the head. It's all in the mind. It's about whether or not we feel secure and in, in, can be vulnerable with one another and accept one another in the deepest of ways that God has given to us. And so she communicates her expectations and desires. That's what all healthy one flesh relationships need. You gotta communicate. A lot of times we'll talk to folks in marriage and they're mad at their mate because they don't understand that they have certain expectations. Well, did you tell her? No, she ought to just know. How long do you want to be sad and miserable in your relationship? Talk about your expectations. Talk about likes, dislikes, frequency. Talk about all those things. But you communicate those things openly and kindly, and you share, and you talk. And this is how we build a healthy one flesh relationship. It's all about communication. And so that's all we're going to say about that issue right there. What we're going to see here is that this woman so enjoys her one flesh relationship with her husband that she admonishes all the rest of the girls in the land. If you want to have what I have, I've got some advice for you. Chapter 8, verse 4, she says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now, when she's speaking to the daughters of Jerusalem, she's just talking to all the single ladies that are out there. All of you who are virgins, you've not yet gotten married. If you want to enjoy the one flesh relationship to its fullest, to its ultimate, that God intends for you to enjoy, and he does, you gotta do it the right way. She tells them, do not arouse, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. She's telling them, don't rush the stages of a relationship. Don't rush into a relationship with a guy thinking that this guy is gonna make you happy the rest of your life. Don't rush into a relationship with a girl thinking this is gonna meet all of my needs for the rest of my life. Take time and allow it to develop naturally. Moreover, she says, don't stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. That word pleases there means delight. It's the same word, Hebrew word delight, speaking of Shechem and how he delighted in Dinah and how King Ahasuerus delighted in Esther. She's saying to them, if you wanna enjoy lifelong healthy intimacy, you've gotta start in your dating life by abstaining. She says, don't even arouse her. You find yourself being stirred up and awakened to want to take that relationship further and further and further. She says, you're awakening something that can't be pleased morally. Wait. It's a reminder, again, we've said it before, but premarital sex will always either harm a good relationship. I've yet to meet a couple, Christian couples, even missionaries I've talked to, I've yet to meet a married couple who played around in premarital sex before marriage who didn't struggle in that exact same area later in their marriage. And by the same token, I've met couples who maybe dated a lot longer than they should have because of premarital sex. It felt like love, but they really didn't know each other. It just, it was lighter fluid, and it burns up bright and glorious, but then there's really nothing left after you take that away. And so she's saying, if you want to have what I have, don't arouse or awaken that until it pleases, until that can be fully fulfilled in marriage. In fact, later on in chapter 8, there's other people who are coming to this couple saying, man, look at this romantic couple. How can we have more couples like you guys? You know, how can I know that my daughter is ready to be married or our sister when she is ready to be married? And they say in verse, chapter 8, verse 8, 
They said, we have a little sister and she has no breasts. It just means she's not gone through puberty yet, but they're already thinking. She's a pretty girl. Guys are gonna come knocking on the door. And they said, what shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? When guys coming around and they're asking to be in a courtship relationship, how do we know if she's ready to move forward in that? And what they say is this. They said, uh, if she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. If she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. Now, a wall, it's just that thing that prevents people from coming into a house to plunder what you have. Okay, and so when we're talking about this girl, if she's a wall, she is moral. She's not just allowing people entry into her house. They said, we will build her a battlement of silver. A battlement is just a perimeter wall. It's a settlement. It's a house. So if she is sexually moral before she's married, she's learned how to have self-control before marriage, we're going to celebrate when some guy finally comes around. This girl's ready to be in marriage. A lot of times the world has it the other way around. They always talk about, oh, well, how do you know if you love each other unless you experience that? Because that is the caboose. The thing that drives intimacy is in the mind. It's in the relationship. What does the Bible actually say? If you're sexually immoral, you're not ready to get married. It's the opposite of what the world is saying. If you're sexually immoral, if you can't learn how to be content and, and uh, self-controlled before marriage, ladies, what gives you any hope that this guy is gonna be sexually moral and self-controlled after you get married? Self-control is something you learn while you're single. And so she, they say, if she is a wall, okay, we will, we will celebrate that marriage when it comes. But they say, if she is a door, that's just a euphemism for she's a loose woman. They said, we will board her up with boards of cedar, the strong wood, the kind that the temple is made out of. They said, we're actually going to barricade her. We will actively hinder her from dating. You see, dating isn't a privilege you get because you reach a certain age. Oh, you're 16, free to do whatever you want now. Dating is a privilege that parents give out according to their discretion if they think you as an individual are ready. Because you don't give out freedom where there's no responsibility. But this girl did, is demonstrating responsibility. In fact, the wife even says in verse 10 of chapter eight, I was a wall. I did show that I was mature. I was self-controlled. And because of that, I have the marital relationship that I have today that is so healthy. In fact, if you look back in chapter eight, verse five, they've had their time of one flesh intimacy. That whole weekend has just been this wonderful romantic time. And then we see them, it says in verse five, who is that coming out of the wilderness? Okay, they got out into the wilderness just to enjoy a little time in the cabin in the woods. They're coming out of the wilderness, and they're like, who is that? But she is leaning on her beloved. She's showing that public affection. She doesn't even care at this point that all the, all the people are gossiping about them. She's just, they're just so close and tightly knit together in heart. And uh, so what we see here is just that she has a very satisfied one flesh relationship because, and she says, because we did it right. We followed what God intended. Now, not all of us in this room, we may be married, but we may not have done it right. This message is not to just lather you up with guilt and make you feel bad. God can still restore that to you. It may be at some point in time that you look at each other and say, you know what, baby, we didn't do it right. But it doesn't mean we can't be happy and fulfilled today. And I'm, I promise you, I'm gonna do everything I can to put you first and, and to create a healthy one flesh relationship with you following marriage. God can restore that to us. Number six, we see that they recommit to one another. She says, verse six, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal on your 
arm. Now, a seal, their seal was often a signet ring. You would press it into wax or something, and it would identify you to people. You could buy things based upon it. You could, uh, it, it would identify you. It's like a signature. And so they would either wear it on their finger or they may wear it on a chain around their neck, and it would always be with them and it identified them associated with that person. And that's what this lady desires. I want to be associated with you. I want to represent you in public. I want to beautify you in the way that I speak of you, the way that we spend time together. I want to be with you at all times. I, like, I want to be like that ring that's tied around your neck and you take me everywhere. I want to be around you. It's showing a strong sense of commitment to one another. And then she continues, for love is as strong as death and jealousy as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. When she says love is as strong as death, she's saying that it's just as you can't avoid what two things in life, death and taxes, right? So she's saying my love for you is unavoidable. I was drawn to you. And then once we have made a commitment in marriage together, she says our love is as permanent as the grave. That once you go in, you're there, I wanna say for life, but you know what I mean. You're there, you're, you're there forever until Jesus comes back. She says, that's how I want our relationship to be. Love is that way, and it, without it, there's a jealousy that can arise. She, she's looking for security in that relationship. She wants to hear from her husband, I'm never going to leave you. I'm going to stay with you. And she even, she even brings God into the conversation. If you leave me, sure, I'll be jealous, but you watch out for God. She talks about the flames of the Lord. The flames of the Lord are like those flames that proceed from the throne of God in judgment. A flame is a type or a symbol of God's judgment. She's saying, you don't just have to worry about me if you're not faithful to me. You got to worry about God. So this lady is dead serious about being committed, but to have an intimate relationship with one another, this closeness, this romance, you've got to have this commitment that I know no matter what happens, you know, I get wrinkles, you're gonna be with me. I get gray hair or the hair turns loose, you're gonna stay with me. If I end up wheelchair bound, if I get to the place where I can't even speak anymore, that you're gonna stay there with me and there's that kind of a commitment. In that relationship, you can create an intimate heart in that relationship. And she longs to hear it from him. And by the way, men, ladies, I hope that the last time you told your wife or your mate that you're never gonna leave them wasn't just the wedding day. You know, on the wedding day, we say those vows, you know, till death do us part. But when's the last time you just looked over at your mate and you took your mate by the hands or maybe you cupped her face in your hands and you just told her, no matter what happens, I promise you again, I will never leave you. Would that do something for your relationship? You try that every so often. You just pull that one out there. And you just take her by the hands and you look right her in the eye for just a few seconds. Make her think there's something really serious he's about to say to me. You know, you just look at her and you say, I just want you to hear this. I will never leave you. Come what may, no matter what happens, I'm right here with you and I'm gonna keep working on this relationship. You see if that doesn't improve your relationship. She might even book you for the Sheraton the next weekend, okay? Because this is, because romance arises out of a sense of commitment to one another and you can't have it without it. Well, then this woman commits herself to her husband. She tells him what she's hoping to hear. Verse seven, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. 
She's just saying, my love, my fire that I have for you, tidal wave couldn't drown it. And if somebody came, in, came up to me and offered me all the wealth in the world to walk away from you, I would hate him for even mentioning it because that's how committed I am to you. There's nothing more important to me and valuable to me than your relationship. Now, as we're talking on reigniting the fires of marriage and romance, we might have some folks in here who are a little bit discouraged because maybe you're in a marriage right now that you feel is a little bit cold. I don't know. Maybe you're thinking, this doesn't apply to me. Yeah, 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 speed it up, slappy. We gotta get out of here. I got lunch coming. Don't much care about this. I've given up. I've long since given up that this will ever be me. Can I tell you not to give up? A lot of times couples, we just give up, don't we? When my wife and I first got married and we were still doing the romantic stuff, you know, making the lipstick mistake on the mirror and all that kind of stuff, couples would often tell us, older married couples, they'd look at us and go, <laughs> you know, they're kind of laughing at us and sneering. Oh, you silly little immature couple, still romantic with each other. Don't wait. They always like, it'll pass. Trust me, it'll pass. Wait till you've been married a whole year. <laughs> it'll go. Well, it didn't. We kept working on it, didn't we, babe? And we kept working on it, but then they would go, oh, well, <clears throat> wait till you have your first child. Yeah, then everything changes. We still kept having fun. We just went and got babysitters. And then they will oh, wait till you have two kids, or wait until, and pretty soon people gave up on that because you know what, my wife and I, we keep trying in our marriage. Not a perfect marriage. And that's not what we expect of you, not to have a perfect marriage. There's no such thing. But we need to have perfectible marriages. Marriages that you're willing to keep working on and trying on. God doesn't want us to give up on love. You remember there was a, a church in Ephesus that in Revelation chapter two, Jesus talked to them and said, you're doing a lot of things right, friends, but what had they done? They left their love, okay? They're serving God out of just, just rigid obedience. We're going to church because this is what we do, this is what good Christians do, and I'm gonna sit down, I'm gonna sing, I'm gonna stand, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna give my money. And, but, but their thoughts weren't, when we worship here, their thoughts weren't to God. They weren't contemplating what he had done. They're not contemplating their love for him. They're just going through religious motions. And God says, I don't want that. I want you to be hot, remember? Not hot or cold, I want you to be hot for me. I want you to be on fire for me. And so, and then when he's talking to the Ephesians, he said these words, he gave them a prescription on how to return to him and return to that fiery love that you had for God at the first. And he says, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And here's three things, three commands he gives them. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at the first. This is a three-word formula to reigniting any kind of fire of love that we have for God and that we have for our mate. And I think we can apply this because the church and its love that it has for Jesus is supposed to picture the love that the wife has for her husband. Ephesians 5 tells us that. And so I think if we follow this pattern, it'll work both in the spiritual realm and in our homes. Remember, remember, he says, from where you have fallen. Remember what it was like when you were first dating. What did you do that you fell in love with each other? Men, were you just that handsome and that amazing that the wife was just overtaken by the glory and awe of your beauty? And says, I must be with this man for 50 years? I doubt it. I mean, look around. I'm just kidding. We're not, this isn't a beauty pageant. She fell in you love, with love with you for a different reason. What happened? 
She got talking to you. She found out she could be vulnerable with you and you wouldn't take advantage of it. You were committed to her. You took her out on dates. You gave gifts. You, you gave her love notes. You, you were always thinking about what, oh, you're getting her chair. You're opening her door, you know. And you're doing all kinds of sweet and romantic things. And you're just like, this is the best guy in the world. And as men, our heart's intention is still to love you that way, but life, just the busyness and the pressures and the stresses of life sometimes can squeeze that creative love out of a man, out of a woman too. And so he wants us to remember where we have, from where we have fallen. He says, you know, go out on a date and reminisce, bring an old picture book, and then take notes. I'm not even joking. Take notes on one another and say, honey, when we were first dating, what attracted you to me? What is it that I would do back then that made you love me? What is it that I did back then that made you want to marry me and spend time with me? And men, write it down. Remember. And then he says, repent. It means to have a change of mind. It's the Greek word metanoia, a changing of the mind. He says, see things differently. You know, there's a lot of couples where we see a couple going from romantic to not romantic and just, you know, we just go out on a date and we're on our phones. Hey, did you pay the check? Did you pay the bills? Oh, okay. You know, and we just think that that's the, that's the mature progression of a relationship. That's where we're all supposed to end up. Does God want us to end up there? Does God expect relationships to go from we're excited about one another to we're completely bored with each other? Is that maturity? Let me ask you this. It's your love pictures Christ to the church. Do you want Jesus to get bored with you? to lose interest in you. That when you first got saved, Jesus is like, hot dog, woo, I got this one, he's on fire for me, they're coming to church, they're reading their Bible, they're giving, they're praying, they're serving. They're... But then you get toward the end of your life and God's like, yeah, I've, you've been around a while. And you, you, you approach death with this, with this kind of blasé relationship with God and God is soured on you. No, you want God to be just as excited about you at the day of your death, at the day of your spiritual birth. God doesn't expect our relationships with our mates to go stale because it pictures God's relationship with the church, which would also does not go stale. He wants us to keep working and trying and to picture that. So he says, remember, remember the things you used to do at the first. Remember what the relationship was like when you fell in love. He says, repent, acknowledge and admit that God doesn't expect us to grow cold. And then the final thing he says is return. Do the works you did at the first. Take your wife out on a nice date, cloth napkins, waiters and everything, and get ready to leave a fat tip because you're gonna be there a while. And you take those notes on each other and remember. And then when you're done, start planning out. What are we gonna do about this? Now that I have this information about you, what, what do we do? You know, plan a date, plan a weekend away, plan a vacation, plan, start researching online. Where's the nearest marriage conference? Or it might be that you're having so much difficulty that you know, honey, I'm willing to go to counseling with you. Let's look for a good, you know, biblical Christian counselor or whatever, and let's, let's get our life, our marriage back on track. Let's reignite that fire. You know, the thing about fires is they're a lot easier to maintain than they are to start, aren't they? I grew up in an old Iowa farmhouse. I mean old. It was like a 1910 farmhouse. So I think the furnace was like original to the house or something. I mean, it was this ancient work belonged in the Smithsonian. Because of that, it either didn't work or it wasn't efficient, so we never used it. So my dad put in a wood stove, which means one house, you can cook an egg on the floor, and the rest of the house, you're wearing a parka. That's what I grew up in. And so that wood stove, we depended on it to provide warmth for the entire house. And there would be some nights it would get 38 below zero without the wind chill. 
And this is Iowa, not like Kentucky. It's flat, so the wind howls. And sometimes the, the wood would burn down a lot faster because it just... It was like a high-tech wood stove. And it would just burn down faster, and we'd wake up in the mornings. Most mornings, all my dad had to do was open it up, stir up the coals a little bit, chuck in some logs, walk away, and that's it. He's maintaining that fire. And then there were some mornings on a really cold morning, you get up out of bed, and you're like, oh, my nose is even cold, you know? And you're, you're putting on your winter coat in the house, and you're going downstairs, and you see, I see my dad down there, and he's kind of frustrated, and he's scooping out all the ashes into the can. He's cleaning it all up, and then he's getting the hatchet out, and he's chopping up kindling little sticks, and he's, he's getting the matches and stuff, and he's just trying to light the stuff and trying to get it to burn. And, and eventually, he gets a small fire going, then he puts bigger sticks in, then he puts the whole logs in, and then eventually, it heats up the the wood stove itself, and then eventually the house. It took a long time. Why did he bother reigniting that fire? Because it was necessary for the survival of his family. It was a lot of work. Wish we didn't have to start over. Wish we could have just started with the embers that were there. It's the same thing in a marriage. There's, a, there's, a, there's embers in our relationship, and if we ignore our marriage relationship too long, those, those coals start to get lower and lower, and if you can catch it fast enough, all you gotta do is throw in some logs, give it a shot, try it up, stir it up, and you can arrive in a place where you're happy and content in your marriage relationship, but if we wait too long so we're so cold that when I'm preaching this message, you're like, yeah, 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 get it done. You might have to get to the stage where you're scraping out the ashes, you're getting the hatchet out, not on each other, you know, but on the kindling, and you're, you're rebuilding that fire from scratch, but why would you bother? It's so much work, it's gonna take so much time. We're talking about months, maybe years, because the warmth of your home, the survival of your family depends on it. Friends, and so I just leave you with those three words. Remember from where you have fallen. God sees being in an unromantic place with God and with our mate as a place of we're fallen from. Up here is where God wants us. Remember where you've fallen. Remember the things you did when you fell in love. Repent and acknowledge God doesn't want our marriage to stay right here. And then return. Do the works that you did at first. Write her those love notes. Slip, slip a love note, ladies, into your husband's you know, uh, lunchbox or men into your wife's lunchbox. They go off to work. Put something on the pillow, a little chocolate-covered strawberry or something. You know, uh, Buy them a sweet little gift, something that you know is meaningful to them. What is it? But figure out what, what lit that fire the first time and see if it doesn't, if with a little bit of work, you can't reignite that fire again. Remember, repent, and return to the marriage that God desired all of us to have. Let's close this morning in prayer. Father, we just want to acknowledge today that there's nobody here, my marriage included, that doesn't need to hear these things, that doesn't need to work on these things. God, help us to remember, both in our relationship with you and with one another, where we have fallen from, where we just got busy with life and we stopped being on fire for God or we stopped being on fire for our mate. We just stopped doing the work. Help us to remember the, th the works that we did at first, the things that made us fall in love to begin with. Help us to repent, to be humble enough of heart to acknowledge that where we are right now is not where you intend for the marriage to be because it's supposed to picture your relationship and love for the church. And help us to take practical steps to return and do the first works. The works we did at the first, when we first fell in love, when we communicated a depth and of relationship with one another that made us want to commit our lives all over with them. 
God, I pray for the marriages here, those that are struggling, those who are in various stages of rebuilding, that you would give them hope, that you're a God who can restore things. You're a God that redeems. You're a God that can take something broken and make it, broken and make it whole again. God, make us whole. Give us healthy, strong marriages that can serve as a healthy nest for our children to grow up in, that they might develop in normal and healthy ways and provide them a good example to follow later. We ask all of this in Christ. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, click on the link in the show notes, and we would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. If you've enjoyed today's talk, remember to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland.